Amen. Well, thank you so much, music team. Always so good to be pointed to Christ. Some of my favorites that we did this morning and so Christ-centered and God-honoring. And I love these, especially on these communion Sundays. Songs like, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, which reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. And In Christ Alone, which is a classic, a newer song, a classic, uh, newer in the terms of hymns, not new in the sense of like last week, uh, top top 10 hits type of thing, but written by the Gettys, which really takes us through the whole story of Christ and what he's done. I just love those songs. So thank you so much, uh, team, for pointing us to Christ this morning. Well, we are going to be in Psalm 84 this morning, the 84th Psalm. We've made it all the way there. We began this journey back in 2015, June of 2015. We began doing summer in the Psalms. So each summer we take a selection of Psalms where uh, we were on pace for about 10 or so. They got thrown off a little bit by the sabbatical that I took last year, so didn't do as many there, but we will get caught back up. I told you when I started this series that it's a 15-year series, and if you start it with us, you have to end it with us. So welcome to Sunrise, if you're joining us here today. So glad that you're here. Uh, it's such a great, it's been a great study for me. I think every summer as I come back to the Psalms, it just feels like going back to mom's house and the familiar sights and sounds and smells and foods and things things like that. And it's just so good to be back in the Psalms each summer. And I will miss them as we get away from that after this week. But we look forward to jumping back in um, in the summer. Uh, Next summer in June, we will be doing that again, starting in Psalm 85. So one announcement I did neglect to mention earlier, it is a communion Sunday. On these first Sundays, uh, just we do this every every month. So all loose offerings that are collected today in our giving box in the back, just loose change, bills, whatever it is, or you can designate. Um, All of that goes to our care fund. Uh, We have a fund that we maintain for people as requests come in for assistance for various things. Um, for our church members and then uh, some outside of our church as well. So just so you know, that is what we do each and every month. Um, Sometimes I neglect to remind us of that, but wanted to do that today. So Psalm 84, and I've titled this Better Blessings. You know, the word blessed may be the most Christian-y word that gets used out there. You'll find it everywhere. Blessed. I did a little research this week on the word blessed, and I went where all good researchers go. I went to Instagram to find out what it means to be blessed. I'm not going to show you any pictures from Instagram, but I just searched the hashtag blessed. And so let me catch some people up just for a moment. On Instagram, it's a social media site, app, and you can post pictures, and then you can hashtag things. You put the little, what, some of us in generations past would refer to as the pound sign, all right? You put that beside a word, and then that becomes sort of collated, and you can search it, all right? And so hashtag, that's what we use now, it's blessed. Variations of this that I found, I browsed through some of these. Blessed, blessed life, blessed be, blessed Friday, blessed with curls. That's a thing now, by the way. I didn't know that. Blessed with curls with a K, not just a C. Blessed mother. Blessed with a heart. That's significant difference. Blessed mama. Blessed with praying hands. Blessed beyond measure. Blessed hands. Blessed is he. Blessed Sunday. Blessed family. Blessed day. Blessed and grateful. Blessed mom. Blessed up. Blessed and thankful. Blessed by the best. Blessed boy. Blessed with the best. And it goes on and on and on. We could do this all day long. 
I found around 150 million hits that we could talk through today of what it means to be blessed. So what does it mean to be blessed? The Bible uses that term actually quite a bit, and it's three times in our psalm here. We're going to see what it means to be blessed. And I want to just distinguish a couple of categories here. In the Bible, sometimes we do see the term blessed used to refer to material things, like and even offspring, kids, uh, things like that. Um, We do see that. But so often in the Bible as well, blessing refers to something that's much different than that. It refers to a spiritual thing. In so many of these posts, and you can go browse it for yourself, so many of these posts, I think the term blessed could easily be substituted with the idea of good fortune or good luck or I had a good day. So what does it really, really mean to be blessed? Let's see how the Bible uses this term blessed. All the way back in Genesis, and God blessed them, said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Be fruitful, multiply. The blessing of God is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Many chapters later in Genesis, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. Here's our word again. For to you and to your offspring, I will give these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So you see a couple of things here. You see the covenant promise is being carried down promise that was sworn originally to Abraham. You see that land is going to be part of this blessing. So it does sometimes refer to things, material types of things in the Old Testament particularly. Job 42 verse 12. Now this is at the end of the book of Job. Remember he had everything taken from him at the beginning. Then at the end he's restored and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. So this is not exactly what you would consider massive wealth today. If somebody tried to give you all these things, you would say, thank you, how do I sell those so that I can convert them to something I can actually use? But in the day, Job's Quite possibly one of the, uh, quite possibly the oldest book in the Bible, at least the story is the oldest, and this is how you counted wealth. Uh, this is what it meant to be prosperous, to be wealthy, was to have livestock like this. So moving into the New Testament, we see the word begins to take on a little bit different connotation. So clearly in the Old Testament, the word can have the idea of blessing, meaning material possessions or children even, are a blessing from the Lord in the New Testament. We're going to be in this chapter before too long. When we jump back into the Gospel of Luke, we're going to finish up chapter 5. That'll be next week, and then we'll be into chapter 6, and we'll be here before we know it. Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So you're blessed if you are poor. Not just if you have a bunch of stuff or if you're having an awesome day or if you had a really good cheeseburger that you felt like you needed to put on Instagram. Not just that. Blessed are you if you are poor. How could you be blessed if you were poor? Isn't that a contradiction of terms, Jesus? No. For yours is the kingdom of heaven, so you have something better than cheeseburgers. Hard to imagine, I know. 
you have the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. There's something better coming for you. You see, you can be blessed and not have all the material possessions that everybody else may seem to have. It goes even further than that. The New Testament does. James, Pastor David took us through the book of James as I was away for many of those, but heard quite a few of those sermons. James chapter one, verse 12 says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. You're blessed, it's good. And Ephesians 1.3 says that God has blessed us in Christ with every, and here's the key, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what exactly do we mean by this term, blessed? I appreciated this definition. This is from the guys at Got Questions. I appreciate their website. They address all sorts of interesting issues, and I found them to be a pretty trustworthy source and a good, good job of synthesizing information. Said, blessed speaks of our inner state of well-being, the prosperity of our souls in Christ. Blessedness comes from unhindered fellowship with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be blessed is to experience the full impact of God's presence in our lives now and for all eternity. I think that's a good definition of blessed. So, as another friend of mine said one time, I think it, he, he defined anything, anything that helps you see Jesus more clearly is a blessing. All right? Now, that could be your cheeseburger. Maybe I'm just hungry right now on the mind. It could be that. It could also be the blessing of a trial. How many of you have walked through something very difficult and you say, I see my Savior more clearly now. I see life with a little bit different perspective now. Your trials could also be a blessing. The difficulty could also be a blessing, and that's what James is getting at. Blessed are you when you persevere. That's the real blessing because it helps you see your Savior more clearly. It helps you define priorities a little bit more clearly. So let's talk about the blessing that we see here in Psalm 84. Let's go back to Psalm 84, and we're going to see what are these true blessings that are talked about. Now, let's set this up in the context of where we've been in the Psalms. I've been making the case all along as we walk through the Psalms that I think they are very intentionally organized, and the Psalms are put together in a particular way for the author's particular purpose. And although it's a collection that spans a huge span of time, probably somewhere around a thousand years or more, perhaps, probably around a thousand years, with the first psalm even being as old as from the pen of Moses in Psalm 90, which we'll get to one of these years. And then we have some psalms that are, speak of the return of exile, which would have been much, much later. This psalm finds itself in book three, which is largely a lament about the destruction and devastation that's come on Israel. And so this particular psalm is this lament of a pilgrim who wants to be in God's place. And for whatever reason, he's not there, but he's longing to be there. He wants to be in God's house. Maybe he's in exile. Maybe he's far away. Maybe he's got some reason why he can't be in God's house. Maybe he's just preparing his own heart for a pilgrimage to the Lord's house. We're not told. 
but it's a pilgrim that wants so badly to be in God's place with God's people around God's presence. So let's read Psalm and then we'll look at these three points. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord, Yahweh of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. That's our first occurrence. Next one, verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it to the springs, to the place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, Hear my prayer, give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows honor, favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. So this psalm has a little bit different tone maybe than some of the others that we've been looking at. It's largely positive, but it's also a psalm of longing. He wants so badly to be in God's place. I think dating of this psalm is really not possible. We don't know exactly when this comes to us, but it sure seems like at least after Solomon's temple has been built, as he speaks of the birds that have taken residence in God's temple. So there's obviously some sort of a permanent structure there. We'll see that in just a moment. He references this amazing promise that God will dwell with his people. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. God dwelling with his people. I want to remind you of a story back in Exodus. It's amazing to me. Once you see this, it's sort of like when you, uh, when you get a new vehicle or a new-to-you vehicle, and you drive around the road, and you look around town and think, everybody got a Camry this week. Have you noticed that, how you just start to see it? Um, and it's not that that probably didn't happen. Statistically, it's very unlikely that that happened. They all bought the car that week. But what your eyes are open to it, right? So you're seeing these things now. And so the Exodus is one of those in the Bible that once you start seeing it, you won't unsee it. It's just everywhere. The psalm that we read this morning speaks often of the Exodus. It becomes this major event in the, in the story of the Bible that you just can't ignore. So I want to read you just a piece of this. This is after the Exodus has happened, you'll remember that God has led his people out. He's giving the command to Moses up on the mountain. He's instructing them in the law. He's teaching them how to build the tabernacle where God would dwell with his people. And then what happens? They build the golden calf and they begin to worship it. And God says, never mind, we're not doing this anymore. And this is absolutely catastrophic. But he makes them an offer. And this is such an interesting offer. This is Exodus 33. I'll read it. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'll read it and we'll be back to Psalms in just a moment. 
This is after the golden calf incident. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people to whom, the, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. Now, I want you to notice something here. God says to Abraham, you depart now, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. If you're ever off at work and your spouse calls you and says, you want to know what your kid did today? Yeah, something's gone terribly wrong, right? It's sort of this, this moment. God says, the people you brought, like, well, Lord, you told me to. Like, I was just following orders here. He says, you brought them up. He says this, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He says, here's the deal. I'm going to send an angel and he's going to go before you. He's going to clear out the land and you can have the land. But here's the deal. Verse three, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. That was the promise. But I will not go up among you. I'm not going. You go. I'm not going. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God says, it's best I don't go, because I'm going to end up wiping you out, because you're a bunch of rebels and idolaters. So you guys take off. I'll clear out the land for you, and go about your merry way. This is an incredible moment in biblical history. What happens here and what happens next, the whole story of the Bible hinges on this moment. It's incredible what happens. What if you had the offer of everything that you ever wanted and no God? What if you could have the world that you wanted, everything that you ever wanted, all the stuff, you know, peace and harmony and joy, whatever it is, but there was no God? Would that make you happy? Would you be okay with that? Israel was promised. They were told, here's the offer. Take off, but I'm not going. That doesn't work. That doesn't work for, for Moses and the people. Verse four of Exodus 33. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. This ceremonial mourning. It says, this isn't, this isn't gonna work. This is a disaster. The whole point of the Exodus was to have a place where God dwelled with his people in a very real, tangible way in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. The story goes on, Exodus thirty-three fifteen. This is after there's this conversation back and forth with God, Exodus thirty-three fifteen, And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses says, if you're not going, I'm not going. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other tribe, people on the face of the earth? God, if you're not going, I'm not going. The whole point of Israel's story was for God to dwell with his people there at the temple, ultimately. This is why he's so excited and mourning. He just wants to be at the temple. He just wants to be where God is. And he's longing reminds us of a greater longing, a greater dwelling that we're headed towards one day. Revelation 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from 
the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The whole Bible's built to bring us to dwell again with God in a real, intangible way. So the psalmist longs for this. He wants this, and he's separated. This is why, verse 2, my soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. I just want to be there. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. He's even jealous of the birds that get to live in the temple. Look at this, verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. There's birds that are living in the temple, and the psalmist is jealous because they don't have to leave. They get to just live at the temple all the time. Isn't it amazing? Anybody flown out of Jacksville Airport lately? John y'all notice in Concourse A, the group of birds that lives down there now? Has anybody else noticed that? Did y'all see? I, I see some uh, travelers out there see it. And they've got these things set up. I don't know if they're, if they're like trying to catch them or if they just gave up and they're trying to feed them, but there's these little deals up there. And I'm sitting there and I'm like watching these birds fly around and I'm looking around like, does anybody else know there's birds living in the airport? Like, are we okay with that? I guess we are. You see them in Lowe's all the time too, right? When you go to Lowe's, Home Depot, there's just kind of birds around everywhere. They just have a way of getting in places and just taking up residence. And I guess there's not much you can do about it. I'm not particularly bothered, but I did find it kind of interesting that they're just living in the airport. I don't know. Felt like I should give them a bagel or something, but I didn't. Didn't want to further the problem. So if you end up having to park at the airport, it's a little entertainment, which is much better now that there's a Southern Grounds um, in the airport um, behind security. So just in case you need to know that, um, that is true. So these birds, they're just dwelling in a place that doesn't seem like they belong. They're not ticketed passengers. They haven't been through TSA, the joys of TSA. They haven't been through all that. These birds, they aren't even priests. They haven't been through the process. They haven't made sacrifice, and yet here they are. And the psalmist says, why can't I just be like one of them? I just want to hang out in God's house all the time. Can I do that? Blessed are those who get to do that. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. They're the blessed ones, the ones who are in God's presence all the time. I want to draw some parallels here, and I want to make sure I distance ourselves a little bit from what we're seeing here in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he's talking obviously here about the temple. The temple was a unique place. There was only one temple. There were synagogues that developed later, which were sort of teaching outposts for the word of God, teaching of the law. But there's only one temple. It's a unique place. The glory presence of God was designed to dwell there. They made sacrifices there. The priests served there. It was an event multiple times a year. All people came to the temple of God. So I'm not saying that the house that you come to here is exactly the temple of God, but I think there's significance and parallels. I hope that you feel some sense of anticipation and excitement as you get to come and be a part of God's people on the Lord's day on a Sunday. Isn't it cool? We get to come here and talk about the gospel and read the Bible and sing with other grown-ups. It's great. Um, It's just a good time for us to be here. And I just want to be a realist here for a moment. I think all of us have probably had those Sunday mornings where we wake up and we think, huh, 
Phil's early. Had a long weekend. Man, the kids. The kids. I think Satan is up before I was up this morning. And it's just hard some days. And I'll be completely transparent and honest with you. Even as a pastor, even as one who has responsibilities, it's kind of my job to be here, all right? And I've woken up on Sunday mornings before and thought, there's a lot ahead of me um, here today. You're just kind of tired, and you just have second thoughts. I don't get the option of staying home, which, praise the Lord, I'm kind of glad for that myself, (laughs) just for my personal accountability. I can't do that. But I'll tell you what happens. What happens, and this happens 100% of the time. You show up, you get around God's people, you have some conversations, people tell you they're praying for you, people share scripture with you, you come and you hear the teaching of the word, you sing, you pray, and you leave in a different place. This is what happens to me every single time. And I hope that's what happens to you as well. I really, really do. It's a joy, it's a blessing to be in God's place with God's people. Just like the psalmist was so excited to be in God's place with God's people. So the blessing of God's place. Next, the blessing of a difficult journey. There's a difficult journey ahead of the psalmist, but he doesn't really see it as being all that difficult. He says in verse five, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are on the highways to Zion. So he's making his way to Zion. This would be Jerusalem, another name. As they go through the valley of Baca, we don't know exactly where that is, they make it to a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. He talks about the travel that he has to go through in order to get there. Now, travel for us is relatively easy in the comparative sense of what they went through. Uh, You really only traveled during the day. At night, you had fear of wild animals, and you couldn't see where you were going, and they didn't have cool, you know, LED lights, and obviously didn't have cars, and didn't have, you know, lights on their carriages and wagons and such. So there was really nothing that they could do. So at night, in in arid climates, um, in dry climates like that, it cools down a lot at night. Many of you have been in desert environments. So it's cool. You would perhaps start a fire. You would huddle together. You would watch for robbers and you would watch for uh, wild animals that were coming. You'd try to get a little bit of sleep and you're just sort of waiting on the sun to come up um, until you can move again. Not exactly all that restful. And so this is how you traveled though. And he says there's strength in this. Um, Having enough water, that's a huge concern, especially in these environments and climates. You couldn't just stop and get water along the trail. You couldn't just stop at the 7-Eleven and get a gallon of water to take with you. It didn't work that way. And so it took a lot of planning and you had to rely on the natural resources that you would find out there too. You knew where the springs were. I gotta make it to this spring so that we can get some water. And so he says, as I go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. So I find water, God's provision for me as I travel and get there. The early rain also covers it with pools. So they have seasonal rains. Many parts of the, uh, of the world have seasonal rains. And so they have these seasonal rains and the rains are gonna come. The psalmist says, you're gonna provide. As I make my journey to God's house to make this pilgrimage, you're going to provide. A place. It's a difficult journey, but the psalmist sees it as something that's good. God is going to protect. God is going to provide. 
Application of this, John Calvin is reading his commentary on this, and he makes an interesting parallel. And now John Calvin, he's writing in the 1500s, and he makes a parallel to those who have a little bit of trouble getting to corporate worship. Let me read you what Calvin said. In these words, reproof is administered to the slothfulness of those who will not submit to any inconvenience for the sake of uh, being benefited by the service of God coming to worship. They indulge themselves in their own ease and pleasures and allow nothing to interfere with these. Going on, they are some to hear the doctrine of salvation or to partake in the holy mysteries, ordinances. We see that some give themselves to sleep. Some think only of gain. Some are entangled with the affairs of the world and others are engaged in their amusements. Engaged in their amusements. This is not necessarily a new convention for us, right? Um, and so Calvin says, there's a little bit of a subtle rebuke here in those who really just kind of blow off the gathering of God's people. It's important. Now notice what Calvin didn't do. He didn't take the fourth command to, to keep the Sabbath holy. He didn't take that and beat people over the head with it. That's not what he does. What he does is say, it's good for you and your soul to be around God's people. It's good for you. You need this. That's really his argument. It's a gospel argument. So it's the blessing of this difficult journey to get to God's place. And I think the same or something similar is true for us. It's a difficult journey just to get here some mornings, isn't it? Anybody with young kids out there? It's a difficult journey to get here some days, but there's blessing in the journey as we continue to follow him. Lastly, the blessing of trusting Yahweh. The blessing of trusting him. Verse nine, behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. God is our shield, which is part of the blessing of the journey. And then he is the looking on the face of the anointed, anticipating, looking for something better. There's three parts of this, trusting in Yahweh. I've used the term Yahweh there. Whenever you see in your Bible the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps, that's actually the proper name of God, which is Yahweh. So for the Lord, a day in the courts, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord, Yahweh, God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Trusting in him. There's hope. There's hope of this better king from verse nine. There's motivation for holiness. Better to be a doorkeeper than to dwell in luxury in the tents of the wicked. He's better. It's better. Spurgeon said this, to bear burdens and open doors for the Lord is more honor than to reign among the wicked. Every man has his choice and this is ours. God's worst is better than the devil's best. I love that. God's worst is better than the devil's best. Throw at me all you can. And there's honor. He withholds no good thing from those who love him. I want to take just a second and develop this idea of trusting the Lord And there's many applications we could perhaps talk through with this. Trusting the Lord. Um, Trust is such an interesting word. And I think David's reminded us of this quote before from Jerry Bridges. I find it super helpful. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It's a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. 
Trust is not a passive state. It's something that we actively hold to. Are we trusting the Lord today? It's not just a question of status. It's a question about your own heart and soul. Are you fighting to trust in the Lord despite the difficulty and despite the things that might come across and come against you today? Trusting in him. How do we build our trust in him? We remind ourselves of the gospel. We continue to do things like corporate worship. We come together. We talk to other believers. We remind ourselves of the things that we know to be true. It's a vigorous act of the soul. It's not a passive state to learning how to trust in him. A few takeaways I'll give you and then we'll celebrate communion together. A few things that I would encourage you with. One, as far as it depends on you, prioritize gathering together with God's people. And I know as we say sometimes, I'm preaching to the choir here, you're the group that's here. So I appreciate you prioritizing even today, being here. Engage your heart and mind in the Lord's work, in his word, in corporate worship. Remember that holiness is worth it. Better to be in the house of the Lord than in the tents of the wicked. And then we also anticipate the greater gathering. And that's where I want to pick up as we celebrate our time of communion today. Oftentimes we end speaking about the return of Christ. As we celebrate communion today, I think it's important and significant to remember that Paul says this at the end, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think it's important for us to stop and remember, even today, even now, that he is returning. It's the greater gathering that we anticipate not just the gathering at the temple, not just the gathering at the local church here in Atlantic Beach, Florida, but we anticipate the great gathering at the end of all of time. That's what we come to celebrate here today. So in just a moment, our servers are gonna come and we're gonna celebrate communion together. Just a couple of notes on communion and how we practice communion here at Sunrise. Communion is open to anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. If you've placed your faith and trust in him, you've repented of your sins and you're trusting in him alone for your salvation, you're welcome to participate with us. If you're not sure your status, if you're not sure if the Lord has saved you or if you're not sure what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we would ask you just watch today. Uh, just observe and just watch what's going on and we would love to have a conversation with you a little bit later after the service is over. It's time for us to come. It's time for us to even look around and see who else is confessing this gospel truth with us. We believe that this is the unifying factor. This is what brings us together as a church family to put the gospel in front of us and to remember what he's done for us. Let me pray for us and as I do that, I'll invite our servers to come forward.